Welcome to another episode of Intriguing Beings with me, Ruchata. The great thing about kiteboarding is you make some amazing friends. People you meet on the beach can turn into friendships that last forever. Joe Wilson's one of my oldest friends from the sport, and I've known her since way back in the day when I used to judge the student windsurfing championships in Rosniger, and that was where I first met her. I've wanted to have her on the podcast for a while because she's a really interesting character. Joe certainly is one of the most successful freestyle kiteboarding athletes that the UK has ever produced. Um, certainly from that time period, I think her best effort was a second place at one of the events, which is incredible when you consider some of the talent that was around back then. These days, Joe runs a successful coaching business, working with riders of all levels around the world. And we chat about that quite a bit and how coaching can improve your riding and how important it is. And we also discuss her role as a mum to Finn and how she manages that with her husband, Chris, with all the traveling that she does. Finally, we chat about her recent cold water swimming exploits. And for those of you in the know, this is basically breaking the ice of a lake in your bikini and getting in for a dip. It just sums up Jo's attitude to life, really. She's pretty full on and nothing holds her back and she never lets anything slow her down. We managed to steal about an hour of time before Finn, her three-year-old son, makes an appearance upstairs and Joe has to run off. So hopefully you'll enjoy this episode. A couple of things to note at the very beginning for about the first 30 seconds, there was a bit of mobile phone interference with the recording. I'm really sorry about that. I've done my best to reduce it uh, in the edit, but it is still there. So if you hear a strange sort of beep, beep, beep noise or a little bit of interference uh, then I apologize for that it does only last for about 30 seconds and then it goes away I'll do my best to make sure that doesn't happen again as ever thanks for the fantastic feedback on the last few episodes I had a really nice uh, message on YouTube actually from a chap who couldn't put a comment on his Android uh, uh, podcast app so he kindly went all the way over to YouTube and thanked me for it there so thanks to you for making that effort I really appreciate that feedback both good and bad um, let me know what I can improve let me know if there's anyone you'd like me to chat to I'm currently in Australia I arrived last night at half past midnight uh, so I'm a little bit jet lagged at the moment trying to get back into the swing of the time zone over here but I'm hoping to pick up a few interesting conversations while I'm over here for you as ever please give it a thumbs up on social media I know I say it every week but like and share the more that you get it out there the more the listener base grows and the more I get encouraged to keep doing this as a little side project um, to what is an already very busy lifestyle for me anyway I won't waffle on anymore let's get straight into it with this week's episode I'm sat this evening with a really good friend of mine. Uh, she's called Jo Wilson, and if you're a kiteboarder, there's a good chance you've heard of her. If you're not, then maybe you haven't. Um, she was one of the original female pro kiteboarders back in the day with a very successful professional career. I think once she was fourth overall in the PKRA events, which was a huge accolade at the time. These days, she's changed her career a little bit more and she's working on coaching clinics and she's worked with adults, children, all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life. She takes them to various places around the world. She does weekends in the UK and lots of different things. And I thought it'd be interesting to sit down and chat with Jo about her philosophy on coaching, which I think is something that a lot of us could benefit from in the sense that actually having someone tell you how to do something sometimes makes it much faster. So, Joe, what I wanted to start with was how did you 
get into water sports and how did you kind of end up in those early days becoming a pro rider where did it all start for you oh hi Ru. yes i i started kite surfing about 15 years ago um i used to do a lot of gymnastics and trampolining and after a while i started hurting myself too often so i decided i need something with a softer landing um, and one day I was just down the beach with my friends who were all windsurfers and, and kite surfing came along and it was almost brand new. I hadn't seen it in the, the UK before and yeah, it looked brilliant. So I watched that uh, for a while and a friend got really good at it really, really quickly um, and it didn't take me long to decide that I was going to give it a shot as well. So I started with that and it took me a long time to learn. Um, but as soon as I could get up and going, I could do tricks quite easily. It was all very similar to gymnastics and trampolining, so I learned to do my rotations and big jumps quite early on. Um, and I was just encouraged uh, to compete, and I took part in some competitions just for fun. But I, like it just started going really well, and I won uh, the British Championships uh, twice in a row, and decided to try out the World Tour just for fun. I think I came fifth on my first World Cup event. Uh, so, yeah, there was. So I had some quite good encouragement along the way, and then it just got more serious without me even realising it. And before long, um, I was I was sponsored internationally by Nash initially, and then Duotone. Um, and yeah, my best result overall for the year was fourth on the World Tour. Um, and yeah, it was just good fun so sort of my career kind of escalated without realizing and was that 2006 i think you were fourth overall i seem to recall i picked up an old copy of kite surf magazine which i was editing at the time and there was a big double page spread with a picture of you and it was like congratulations joe wilson the fourth overall in the pkra yes that's Um, right yes and you got a few podiums along the way didn't you what was your best result at an event Oh, I did. I got quite a lot of podiums, so I was always sort of up there scrabbling for uh, the top place. And my best overall was second. I was first um, in the single elimination round. I was doing really well, and I was thinking I would get my first ever on an event. But then uh, Gisela Polito came along, who's multiple world champion now, and she was about 14 at the time, and she totally kicked my ass. And um, what was really painful is that I don't even think she was 14 actually, is um, when I was packing up at the end of the day, I walked up um, the road with my kit and my car and out the corner of my eye, I could see Gisela Polito skipping with her friends. I was like, I can't believe it. She's the one that just (laughs) beat me to the top spot. And she's just sat there skipping. (laughs) Absolutely. Why are you not at school? (laughs) Brilliant. And back then it was quite different, wasn't it? Because the PKRA was quite a well-established world tour series and there's been a lot of turbulence in recent years for competition scene. How many events were you having to go to? Because were you travelling around the world quite a bit for that? Yeah, well, I felt really... I was really lucky, actually, because it was the World Tour in its heyday, really, and it felt very successful. We had 10 events per year, and sometimes there'd be no more than five days between events. I'd be in Dominican Republic one day, have to fly straight over to Tarifa, and then compete five days later over there. So we were travelling what felt like all the time, I was barely home for uh, less than like less than a week, I think, at a time before I was going to the next place to train and compete. So it was quite a grueling schedule, actually. I always felt like I was kite surfing to a red flag, green flag system. Never <laughs> a lot of time to free ride and practice. But some of those events, so you're five days between events. 
how did you logistically manage that? Because you were just traveling on your own, right? You didn't have anyone helping you or a team behind you or anything like that. It was just you have to get yourself to these events and sort all your own flights out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kite surfing is such an independent sport. And certainly back then, and I think very much so still now, you're just you on your own. Um, I mean, I was sponsored by Nash International and Protest Boardwear. So I had some really good sponsors behind me and they pay me enough money to be able to do the world tour, albeit on a, on a shoestring. Um, but yeah, I'd have to book my own flights and all my own accommodation. And we could often get discounted, but we'd just do it as cheap as we could. And actually the flights were often not all that expensive. I remember being able to fly to Venezuela for 300 quid, which you could never wow. get now. Yeah, and Brazil for a while. And my cheapest flight to Brazil once was £188 return. No way. Yeah, so so I feel like back then we had good sponsorship. I had good sponsorship um, and we could do it on a, a good budget. I think it would cost me about ten to £12,000 for the year to do it. Um, so, so all that was covered, but not much more. So it was okay. And how was the prize money back then? Was it kind of decent prize money or was the sport still so new that there wasn't much cash sloshing about no it was okay and they did so i think what did the girls get much less than the boys i think top prize was something like three thousand dollars or euros depending on what country you were in and um that went up to about seventh place it's really fun frustrating when you were seventh or eighth and just didn't quite get anything but <laughs> you'd often come i'd often come back with 250 euros or more from an event and i think sometimes i'd come back with a thousand euros from an event sometimes i'd get more than it cost me but not very often yeah so the peak was like oh i've actually made a profit and yes. the worst was like oh i've kind of eaten into the cost of the flight a little bit yeah the girls were on i think they got 18 percent of the prize money, the rest went to the guys. You mentioned something there that I hadn't thought about chatting to you about, but it seems like a good opportunity to ask you the question. There's a lot of talk these days about equal prize money for girls in sports. How do you feel about that as a concept? Is it something, because you're obviously part of that scene where you weren't getting equal prize money, do you think it's a good thing or is it something that if it should be on the number of entrants or how do you feel about it? Oh, yeah, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Probably quite controversial. Now, um, when I was competing, there were a lot less girls than there were guys. Um, so I sort of understood that the girls wouldn't get as much prize money based on that. But percentage-wise, it didn't make sense at all. So um, it must, it could have been much more 60-40 um, or something like that. But, 80, yeah, we were on 18%, and that's a lot less than it should have that's, been. Yeah, it's not a lot, is it? It's no. a real tiny amount. Yeah, it was. Um, and people might argue that the guys' level is much higher than the girls' level, and so that could be something to do with it. But the girls push the sport very hard and train as hard and have the same costs, and, um, and yeah, they, they do have a very good level as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. My take on it, I guess and I might be controversial here and upset a few people, but I think it should be done on the number of entrants. So if you've got 10 guys entering and three girls entering, then that's your ratio from how hard it is for those three girls to get on the podium versus how hard it is for those 10 guys to get on the podium. If you've got 50 guys entering and 50 girls entering, then it's an equal split for the prize money because it's just as hard for the girls as it is for the boys to get into that prize money slot. And that's the way I've often thought it should work, but... 
I don't know how you feel about that or if you've got different views on it. I think that's the most simplistic view, isn't it? It makes the most sense. Um, it just doesn't account for the fact that uh, the guys and the girls have the same expenses and costs and uh, all involved to do it. So, yeah, you, it's a good point. It's probably the, the best way to go about it. But Yeah, it's yeah. tough, isn't it? I think they're talking about equal prize money in the surfing events now. So like the ASP Pro Tour, that's got equal prize money for girls and the guys. But then they've got the same number of girls competing as they have guys. And the level, okay, the level's different. But I don't think it should be about the level. I think it should be about, you know, the number of competitors you've got and what they bring to the sport. And I guess for, for surfing, the girls pull in a lot of business for that sport. And it's kind of the same for kiting. You know, the girls add a lot to it. So perhaps they should be better rewarded rather than not. Yeah, well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, when you look to surfing, I'd say you look equally to the, the guys and the girls um, for the image that they create for it. And they both have equally as important roles to it. And uh, um, I don't know, you could look to tennis as well, couldn't yeah. you? That's another sport. That's another one. I don't know what the, what the Wimbledon money is. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, no, I have to I'm check now. I remember sure it used to be... it's not equal. No. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm pretty sure it's not equal. So, yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I digress massively. That wasn't something I was going to chat to you about at all, but seeing as we came across it, I figured I'd ask the question. Um, and so you were doing really well in your pro career. At what point did you kind of realise that you didn't want to keep travelling around the world and living out of a suitcase and just being in the Dominican Republic one week and somewhere else the next? Oh, I don't know if that actually ever happened. I always want to travel the world. I I enjoy escaping in all the different places that you get to go. Um, but it did. I did realise that I didn't want to compete anymore. I think I mentioned before um, the red flag, green flag system. I felt like I was constantly against the red flag, green flag system. Um, and I never really got time to go free riding or ever get the time to enjoy it. I always felt like I was under immense pressure. Uh, all I wanted to be was world champion and that was it. Nothing else was important. Um, and not many people had support um, from coaches or people helping them. You might get some tips from some friends, but it was, um, you were just so alone. Uh, I felt it was a really hard thing to do. And psychologically, I was affected massively as well. And something I know now is that um, if you don't believe in yourself, you, you're not going to get anywhere. You have to believe in yourself because no one else is going to do that for you. I think that's really important to learn. And I feel like I was my own worst enemy in that because I just wanted to be world champion. Um, and so when my tricks weren't working out, and back then, like, I, I don't even know, it's like 10 years ago, I was working on, like, low mobs and front mobs, like, the tricks that the girls are pulling off in competitions now. And I was doing it back then. I was always so close, but I didn't know how to get that final that final part so when it came to competing I was back to the much more simplistic tricks I couldn't even land that anymore because I'd been training so hard on the other tricks so like I just had this massive wane in my own ability like in my own head and I remember talking to some key people on the competition scene hoping that they would help me to come through that and be positive and they would tell me come on Joe you can do this but I didn't find anyone who ever was able to do that for me um, and so I was just in a very dark and miserable place with it and it only made me go backwards. So I decided one year like that was just not okay anymore um, and that I'd go and compete and I would just go and have the best time ever and travel to all those events and 
um, I just enjoy myself. And actually, I think I was second at the first of the World Tour events of that year. And I was just so happy. <laughs> did that then make you go, oh, I've got to be world champion again oh, and go no. back into that mindset? Or did you manage to keep it as, no, I'm just here to have fun and enjoy myself? No, I just, I turned like a, I turned a corner in my mind like I was like no like this is fun like look where you are look what you're doing what look what your sponsors enable you to do um so I really didn't care I just want to have a good time and I did very well I, I did uh, get quite a few podium places and I think I ended up seventh overall on the world tour but that was that that was my last year and at the end of that I was like no I'm, I'm finished now so I was just really aware all through that time that I felt um, let down by not having anyone there to coach me and that I wanted to be able to offer that back to other people so that they wouldn't find themselves in the same position. So that none of the guys or girls that are on the tour, would, if you would say to them, oh, you know, I'm struggling with this trick or whatever, they weren't really that forthcoming with any help? No, not at all. Um, That's my, terrible. I know, it was really <coughs> bad. And also probably my own inhibitions. I didn't feel very confident to go and ask people or like really say to one of the riders, look, I'm really struggling. I mean, I do remember, I remember asking Aaron Hadlow about my front mode. Like, and he's like, oh yeah, I'll watch it. And he watches it and he goes, oh, you're really close. And that was it. That was his advice. And I was like, yeah, I've been really close for a really long time. <laughs> so I didn't quite clinch it. My best coach definitely was Mike Smith, um, okay, British yeah. champion. He's a good friend of ours still. Um, he was on, uh, we used to go to South Africa as our training ground and he would be there and he always there, um, he would always try to help me and he did help me a lot, but, uh, he wasn't sort of at the same place as me competition wise. And so it, it wasn't quite enough, but he certainly made a difference to me. So this lack of coaches, I guess, or lack of help that you got, is that what led you to decide that you wanted to start coaching other people and did you start coaching people on the pro tour or did you go and become a kite surfing instructor and then work up to some coaching qualifications how did that happen yeah no so so I got my instructors somewhere along the lines I don't even remember back when um, and my idea was just a I, I didn't mind what level I was helping I just wanted to help anyone it's a a place in your mind isn't it it's not what you're trying to achieve that's what my thoughts are anyway and so so I got my coaching instructors from the BKSA it was a certificate that they run every few years and there's about eight of us who are fully qualified in the UK for that role and then I set up some coaching holidays and that was just for your regular kite surfer who wanted help to improve their level so that's where I've aimed it at. Okay so never sort of straight into helping other riders that were in a sort of similar situation you you were like right I'm done with the pro scene I just want to go and help other people and improve their riding I don't think I had the confidence to be able to do it for pro riders I didn't <laughs> feel like a good enough one myself so <laughs> so it wasn't straight in for the pro riders nowadays most definitely I really want to help them uh, I've got so much experience in coaching my business will be running for 10 years this coming March so I have so much experience in that now and also up to a fairly high level. I mean, I start at jumps and back rolls. I do a lot of that, but I coach a lot of handle passes, a lot of kite loops, um, that sort of thing. And I also have a lot of experience in um, off the water training and how to keep fit and strong and healthy for it, which a lot of people do ignore, unfortunately. Uh, so now I have much more confidence and I do coach people of a higher level, but um, they're sort of early world tour competitors. They're not at the top yet. Yeah. And so that first year when you decided to set up your coaching business, how did that go? Was it instant success or was it really hard work? 
Oh, oh my goodness. I weigh about nine and a half stone, so I'm not that heavy. And I used to always come back half a stone lighter because I'd never stop running around for it. Um, <laughs> my first holidays, I feel sorry for the people that came on them. Where was your first holiday? Well, the first holiday was in... Um, my first, sorry, uh, my first holiday was in Cornwall. Okay. Uh, down there, uh, it was a bit of a trial holiday, really. And then my first major holiday was in South Africa because that felt just as much as my backyard as anywhere else. You've been going there for years, haven't you, South Africa? That was kind of a home from home in the winter for you. Yeah, my first holiday there was in 2010, and I'd been going there since uh, 2005. Wow. And how did it go, the first one in South Africa? Oh, yes, it was quite good. I think we burnt the candle at both ends. We used to get up really early and do lots of running and boot camp activities. And the guys that were on that course would have really aching legs just from the running, let alone all the kiting that we then took place, took part in afterwards. Um, and then we'd always do, we always do and still do um, yoga type stretching in the evenings, which is obviously really helpful. And we'd have a few drinks as well, but nothing too wild. Um, it went very well from the start. Worked out yeah. all right. Yeah. So the idea of coaching to a few people, well, not a few people, a lot of people is kind of alien. They just kind of, it's a bit like, you know, we do a lot of mountain biking um, with one of our other magazines and people can ride a bike. So they then go and ride a mountain bike and they ride it around the woods and they just assume that they'll just learn by themselves because no one ever teaches you how to ride a bike or your dad teaches you how to ride a bike or your mum teaches you how to ride a bike when you're about three or four and then that's it. You just get on and you learn it yourself. And there seems to be a shift in that sport where people are realising that actually with a coach showing you how to properly ride a bike, you can progress much faster. So how do you feel about that in terms of kite surfing? You know, people come for kite surfing, they have to have lessons, uh, unless they were back in the day before they were instructors. But really these days you need a you know, lesson from a proper instructor. But then after that initial lesson period, they kind of disappear off and just go. So where does coaching fit in in terms of helping those people? Mm, you're right. So when people first have their kite surfing lessons, they get to a certain ability and then it is time on the water. They do just have to practice and get the hang of going upwind and returning to the same spot. And a lot of that does come from time on the water. So where my coaching holidays come into it are when people want to leave the water, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so it's for when people want to leave the water, they want to jump or do their first rotations. Um some people think that coaching is not for them and it's a, I will try it and I can do it. But uh, so many people have come through my coaching holidays now. And we have so much experience of all the different personality types and ways of learning. Um, and we really feel like we can shortcut how you can learn a trick. Basically, we don't want people to crash. We're not there about letting people crash. And what we can do is we can point out where it's most likely going to go wrong. We're experienced in that. And we can point that out to you as well as how to do the trick. And it really minimizes your chances of big crashes. And um, it's a successful method. It builds people's confidence. We do building blocks. So it's never straight into one trick. You have to learn like the little progressional steps along the way. Um, so you might not learn it instantly. Some people better learn it very quickly. Some people might take a week. Um, but we'll crack those, uh, we'll crack those tricks with very minimal crashes and that's what's important to us and is that a technique that you've developed yourself as a coaching technique or is it something that you've learned from someone else no it's definitely developed myself but it's not myself it's from everyone who takes part on my trips right so right. I remember a poor guy who had to do back rolls for a week because he couldn't do him and that's all we worked on for the entire trip and he kept getting drilled and crashed and 
um, that people are so determined. It's very admirable. But poor them. Nowadays, like I know so many different that like takeoffs and set up is the most important thing. And you can see without trying a back roll, for instance, or a Rayleigh, that their takeoff and setup is not correct and so they're never going to make it so we won't even try it until that all looks right and so it's through everyone else trying it lots of me failing for them um and and now yeah we're doing okay people are learning quite quickly so 10 years on how many trips a year do you do oh we do 10 years on and about 10 trips a year okay wow that's a lot yeah so you're not in the uk much no, we sort of cram in uh, two or three trips in each location. Um, so we find ourselves away for about six months of the year and then we spend six months back at home. Okay. And when you're back at home, what are you doing then? Are you kiting or are you running the business or are you, you know, what are you up to? Uh, <laughs> we've just spent the most amazing day with joe's kid finn who's having a difficult phase of being a three-year-old at the moment (laughs) yeah no we have very different lives uh my husband and i we have a three-year-old so um when i am coaching and running my holidays we've managed his business so that he can travel and my three-year-old usually comes um and so He's full-time dad when I'm running my trips. But then when we come back, Chris also has his own business and we literally fully reverse that. So when I'm back at home, I'm full-time mum. And then I run my business, like all my promotion and advertising and everything that I do has to happen in the evenings or his nap times or any bits of childcare that we might get. That must be incredibly hard. And I'm sure there's, you know, there'll be parents listening to this podcast. What's the most difficult thing about managing that, do you think? Oh, it's just massively hard because I find that if you try to do work and look after a toddler, nothing goes well. You do a terrible <laughs> job with your work and you do a terrible job with your toddler. Um, so I've had to, I feel like I've had to let that go or I can let that go. Um, and when I'm with Finn, I'm just 100% with Finn. I try not to use my phone. I try not to do anything with emails. Um, so my brain is completely detached from work and I have to do that because I offer all these lingering things that I want to do and need to get on with. But then Finn doesn't have a good time of it. So so the hardest thing is detaching yourself from one and then re-engaging yourself at another time. Sometimes you, as every parent will know, you're just so tired. They need you all the time <laughs> and you get to the end of the day and you've got a lot of things to then crack on with. Um, so so just whether it's the same as everyone isn't it? it's management yeah time management i guess yeah that's what it comes down i to. think i'm really efficient at work when you do have that time it's amazing what you can do in two hours <laughs> once you've had a child on Facebook or anything like that. you're like right straight into the emails get the emails done straight into this get that done there's no procrastination you have got time for it i have an incredible app these days that does all my organization for me i try not to make i try not to keep anything in my head anymore i have to put everything down on paper and that is something that I had to take a lot of getting used to because I felt like I contained everything in my head before and everything was very ordered, how I did it all. It was all methodical methods out the window now. I just rely on my list, which I have to be careful of. And then I make sure I tick everything off the list. And that works for me. Perfect. I guess that's what it's all about. Just management skills, isn't it, really? Not just managing your business and Chris's business, but managing Finn as well, making sure everything happens when it needs to happen. What would... Um... What would someone expect when they come on one of your coaching courses? Like, how does it how does it run? What's the sort of if I was booking in for a week, what would I be expecting to experience? 
you need to tell me that, don't you? I, <laughs> I don't can know. tell you what they're going to get. <laughs> yeah, well, you tell me what they're going to get then. I'm, com- I'm coming. What am I going to get when I turn up on one of your courses? Uh, I have a range of different holidays. Like we do Tyree in Scotland and we do Egypt on the Red Sea and we do Brazil safari. We have such a range of different types of trips. So some of them are real safari with a lot of different conditions where people would become a better overall kite surfer. We adapt every day. We adapt the tricks that you're working on each day according to the conditions. So no, um, often no two days can be the same. But then you might come to somewhere like Egypt where we have the same conditions day out, day out, day in and day out. And we call them the functional trips where all you need to do is uh, focus on your trick and how to improve it and not all the conditions that are changing around you. So it depends on the type of person and what you want from a trip. If you just want massive adventure, you come to Brazil or Tyree. But if you want massive progress, you'll come to Dakla or Egypt. So what we do is we have a maximum of 12 people who can come on a trip and we have two coaches. um, And then you are split into um, groups from there where the ratio is no more than one coach to three people. Um, And then it's work. we work towards your own individual goals. And it's very easy to do that with such small numbers. So you're never really pushed into something that's not right for you. You work on your own goals. That's quite good. And then you get a coaching session for about three hours, which in my 10 years of experience, that's enough for people. You yeah. can you can then free ride after that time, and people often do, but they don't want any more coaching in that day. Brain's overloaded. Uh, her brain is overloaded. And it's tiring, right? Like you go and ride for three hours trying a trick each time. It's much more exhausting than just riding for three hours and not really trying. Um, we film a lot of it, so there's a lot of video feedback. We do a lot of stretching because we kite every day for quite a long time. So everyone aches by day three. Everyone's aching a lot, but the stretching makes a big difference. Um, and then we always have dinner together and we create a real group vibe. Like no one's to be left out. That's not that's yeah. not OK. Um, so we all, all form a kind of great, I always call them the crew. We are a crew. We hang out together. We do everything together and we have a great time. And the people who come on my trips, 80% of people rebooked to come back again. Wow. So it's a really high rebook rate. So That's a huge rebook rate. Yeah, it's really good. That's quite good. So after 10 years, you must have quite a big client book that you can kind of put a trip out there and know that you're going to hopefully sell Yeah, it. I can call them up and tell them if I've got a trip coming up um, and I think it's right for them. Some people, I've seen them from not being able to jump and now they're doing handle passes. And these are people in their 30s and 40s because... Let's face it, coming on these coaching holidays, it's not the kids. They can all do it already, right? Yeah. It's like people who are in their 30s and 40s that work full-time jobs. They're really busy. They don't have time to think about what they're going to do on their kite surfing holiday. So they let me do that for them. And I just want them to have as good a time as possible where they ride as much as they can. What's the biggest nightmare you've had on the trip? There must have been some like incidents where it's all just gone horribly wrong. What's your biggest horror story? Oh, let me think about it. That you can tell us. (laughs) No, I'm going to think about it. Let me think about it. Hmm. (laughs) They're that many. You've got to choose one. (laughs) They're all right on the whole. They are all right on the whole. There's nothing too major. I mean, um, one guy who was already capable of jumping nine metres plus, um, and we were doing the mega air um, masterclass, basically, helping people to break that 10-metre barrier he had a slip out as he he used a, a ramp to launch himself, shot up into the air and he had a woo on. So he, we know he was at nine metres 
and because he slipped on the wave he sent his kite into a kite loop straight away and it was a full mega loop but yeah (laughs) he came down on his ribs and that was bad times that was bad times like he got back in but he didn't ride for the next week and then he had to have a lot of treatment when he got back we sent him to hospital and everything to check him out and he was okay but it was a it was a a tough a tough crash um that's in 10 years my biggest drama was on Tyree which is such a remote island that we have to be very careful there and we always stick to safe beaches where it's cross on shore on the whole but the incident happened um the day after my coaching holiday had finished and two or three people chose to stay on because the forecast was was very good I was going out free riding at a cross offshore location with some decent waves but it was pretty gusty it's cross offshore the wind's coming over a headland um and the person went out and they were on a five line kite and it was very gusty. They got out behind the waves and they crashed their kite and the fifth line, it all went inside itself um, and it could have relaunched. But she uh, she panicked and hit the quick release and she was in a real panic. So we were riding with her trying to calm her down to begin with. And then it was about dragging her in and it was a team effort. Helen Thompson was involved. She lives over there. Um, and we were pulling her in but we were coming in through the waves and we were right at the bottom of the beach now and it was big cliffs and we couldn't dive our kites without the kites coming down on the cliff so at that point we had to let her go in the breakers and we thought that she was going to be okay and get washed in but you know what rips are like so she was on her way and then she got caught in the rip right on the edge of the rocks and she went straight back out to sea again yeah she did um, and this point, though, we landed the kites on the beach and we were, like, all scrambling over rocks and climbing round. And we got round the corner and there she was clinging onto a rock. And we just had to pull her up out and onto the cliffs. So that was that was a disaster. A moment. <laughs> I've not seen her again and I don't blame her. It was so bad. But that was after the coaching holiday. It was, like, pre-riding day anyway. So Yeah, that could have happened to anyone and we would have been there for anyone. It was just a shame that it was people who'd been on my trip that then yeah. chose to come out whilst I was out free-riding in big waves and cross offshore on safe conditions. But it's nice that you were there to help out. That's always a bonus. And have you had any, like, missed flights or, like, hotels caught fire or anything bad like that or have you been fairly lucky oh morocco <laughs> obviously it's morocco isn't it morocco pulled out on me four weeks before my coaching holiday was due to take place they just took my booking away um so we're no. a group of yeah how can they do that because we're a group of maximum 12 people and if it's just me coaching we'll only be seven people so we're a very small group and uh it was quite worldwide in particular that came in with a big booking and they wanted to take the whole place over so they literally just kicked us out and said no, no. we can't take your booking so i had to fly out to morocco um to resolve the situation and um yeah that was it that was did you manage to resolve it well i turned up on his doorstep which was a shock for him (laughs) (laughs) can imagine (laughs) joe wilson calling big fist (laughs) so he offered me the accommodation right back but there's no way i'm going to accept that right it's too big a risk yeah um so in the end we found a more um, a more well-known well-established company um we booked with them like the reliability is the most important thing we try to keep it as unique as possible but we can't take those kinds of risks yeah that's got to be the toughest thing i guess because you're you're organizing a trip you're getting a bunch of people to commit some time which everybody is time poor 
and then you're relying on your partners to then deliver that. I guess over the 10 years, you've developed some really good partners that you work with. And I know we were talking the other day and you said like Brazil's so good because you know everyone so well and it all just runs so smoothly. How important are those partnerships to you and your business? Oh, massively so. So 10 years down the line and I, I have now established some relationships that it took me a long time to really trust in them because dealing with Egyptian people, I'm not sure, but they're very reliable and trustworthy people. Um, and in Brazil, foreign language, like we have um, um, very small companies that we're dealing with for transfers, say, or so there's so many places where these things can fall apart and do from time to time. <laughs> Um, but I have so many connections in these places now or people who I know I can trust that fix problems. Um, and that's just come from time. And yeah, so I'm very lucky now. I have some good people behind me. And the other thing I wanted to chat to you about, because obviously you've got Finn, who's awesome, although a little bit grumpy at the moment, but that's fine. He's only young. Um, you just recently did a trip to Tyree, which was a family coaching holiday. What's the concept behind that? And why did you decide to do family coaching holidays all oh, right so chris and i don't get to kite half as much as we used to which sucks and so i know that all the parents of the world who kite surf also struggle from the same thing so we decided to set up family kite surfing holidays so we could all go away and be together at the same time um, and share the fun and frustrations that come in that path so we literally run these family-friendly holidays now where up to four families can come to one location. We all have separate accommodations because we all need our own private space. Um, and what I do is I run two coaching sessions per day. Um, we communicate via WhatsApp the night before so that the communication gets out early and we don't deviate from plans to make it very simple. Um, and I run coaching in the morning for the mums and coaching in the afternoon for the dads. Or they can swap if they want, you know, they there's no strict rules on it. It's just ensuring that each person gets a session. Um, and then on top of that, everyone has children. So there's always one parent on the beach and one or two children, however many they're bringing. And they all just play around on the beaches together. And the trips that we've run so far have been so successful. I can't believe it. Um, none of our children would quite happily be outside in the rain in Scotland for eight hours a day whilst <laughs> one parent goes kite surfing. That's just unheard of. But put them all together, put them in the right layers and give them some bikes and some sandcastles to build. Oh my goodness, they outlast all of us. <laughs> they literally outlast all of us. The best thing about the family-friendly holidays is that those children are having the time of their lives and we get to unselfishly kite surf because that's what's enabled the kids to do it unbelievable that's fantastic so you run in more of those yeah absolutely so uh tyrese in scotland's not everyone's uh, first choice of holiday so we thought we'd better go to some warmer climates as well so our next one that we're doing is in sicily um where we've got a flat shallow lagoon um and it's warm weather and basically the wind generally blows in the afternoon which leaves family time in the morning and we start coaching from 12 noon and finish around 8 p.m at night to make sure that everyone still gets time on the water and the kids just love it they razz around on their bikes out there too awesome and for i know we mentioned it a bit before but a lot of people you know oh, i don't need coaching i'm i'm really good at kite surfing and stuff like that what would you say to that that kind of person that kind of whatever sport they're in that thinks that they don't need it how can a coach make a difference to their achievement levels within that sport 
All oh, right. Well, a coach can absolutely make a difference to their achievement levels as long as you can get them involved. Right. So people think that they can learn a lot um, by themselves, but you always get stuck along the way. And there are faster methods of doing it. At some point, someone's going to get stuck and you're going to be on a plateau and we can help with that. Um, and what would I what I would say to them is um, come and try a trip because we have all personality types of my absolute favorite are the toughest personalities. <laughs> the ones that you're like, how am I going to crack this person? How can I show them like it's my own personal miss- mission? Um, and we always do because because like we're so experienced in it. We've been I've been kite surfing since its infancy and I've been coaching people and so many people. I've met everyone in every walk of life. Um, that's the joy of it. And you have to try it because we can 100% help. So That's all I can skills. say about that, right? Like anyone anyone who, like you're just daft if you don't think you need coaching because everyone needs coaching, however yeah, good you are. it doesn't matter how good you are. Someone can always give you a tip if they're better than you or they know how to do that one trick. Yeah, absolutely. And people will write to me and I completely respect this and they say, I'm at this level with my sport. I would like some help. But I don't know if you're the one to help me because, one, I'm a girl, so a lot of people are a bit concerned about that. And two, people are concerned that maybe my level is not high enough to help that. Um, So if someone's level is a little bit higher than mine, I'm always honest and I will tell them. And then what we do more of, if I don't know how to tell them the answer right away, we'll video them more. And when we do video comparisons and analysis and um, help with that... um, if their level is far beyond me, so people at the moment ask me about strapless freestyle, well, I'm terrible at strapless freestyle, and I just tell them, I'm like, don't come to me, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be totally honest about it, um, totally honest about it, and then they can decide from my answer whether they should come on a trip or not. But uh, I have a high level of um, coaching the person who works for me. He's the current British champion, so he can do uh, mega loops and he can do any handle pass he can do handle pass seven so if you're doing tricks like that then we can still help you if that's that's george dufty right that's right yeah and he comes on your coaching trips and he's like the the expert advice i guess he's my second coach basically so he will be as much leading a coaching session as i will be quite often what we do is we do groups of five and we both coach together so we're always there with each other and yeah working on things yeah and I think basically where my my holidays are different from other people's or what stops someone from just running a coaching holiday is that mine are so structured so um so where George is massively more technically technically minded than I am um like he'll admit it himself to begin with he just comes out with a whole load of verbal words that mean nothing to anyone else they're not related to what they can do or now he is so good at relating it to who he is with so it's just something that he's learned along the way but we structure it we keep everything so simple because there's only one thing you can remember at one time right I can only remember one thing um so we keep it all so simple um but yeah he allows us to be teaching much higher level of tricks as well and gives me more confidence with that side of things and for a while you ran some youth coaching clinics and things like that what what was behind that and what's the story with those at the moment like where are you on that journey oh yes I did I've always 
it's always something that I've wanted to do is the youth coaching side of things and always been a bit nervous about um, children not being able to make their own decisions and that I had to make those decisions for them whilst adults are quite capable of making their own decisions. So that's what's always made me nervous in the past. So it took me a while to set it all up. But after a while, I was like, that's what I'd like to be doing now. Um, so I established a youth programme which ran for four years um, and there were quite a few um, children between the ages of 11 to 16 who would come on that and if I'm honest like the the main part that I'm concerned about is injury within the sport um, I'm sure you're all aware of the amount of knees that go and the Meccano sets that are on the water of all such young people and it just breaks my heart to think that kids are going to go and do that to themselves so I literally set up um, to not only help them with knowledge about sponsorship and how to be a professional rider and how to learn new tricks. Um, it was about the fitness off the water and um, nutrition and how to keep your body strong and capable for when you do go on the water. We talked about that a little bit the other day just when we were chatting, so let, let's expand on that a little bit. What you're talking about is is injuries within the sport. How would you say that someone should be training to do the sport or how would they prevent those injuries what techniques have you got or what recommendations have you got for how they can present prevent those injuries oh well I don't like you want to prevent these injuries and you can't prevent everything right but you can do your best um so you you can do the best that you can um I just rec what I recommend is um a level of cv fitness which might involve biking or running um a lot of like more explosive sort of exercises to do with box jumps or just like squat jumps on a, in a field or something, a lot of core work, basically building up the strength around those joints so that the muscles can support impacts um, that we take on the water. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, the stretching that goes with it uh, to keep our bodies supple and younger people think that they don't need it and they certainly don't need it as much as we need it or seemingly so. Um, but you could ask there's many 17, 18 year old who's out there competing at a good level and their bodies are so screwed. They've got such back problems or elbow problems or shoulder problems and um, they might be lucky enough to not have blown out a knee or something yet. But yeah, they all need it. You've managed to not do any knee injuries, but you did break your foot. But yes. that was more of a accident rather than a repetitive injury from just slamming boards down hard, right? Yeah, I've I've managed. I have I've had many minor injuries over time. You can't can't not can you? So it's not saying that we can stop everything, um, but you can certainly build your strength. And ever since I started, um, well, I've always been sporty, so I've always trained off the water. Anyway, I've always trained to be strong and fit and be able to handle. Um, when impacts do come along so I have been lucky I've never done anything major and I'm holding on to a wooden table <laughs> as I say that because I'm sure I have one in the post but I could take an injury now and I at least I could say um, I did my best to not get it and yeah that's what's important I think so you did everything to try and prevent it rather yeah. than just walking blindly into it yeah, absolutely. And for those people who are competing or aiming to compete at a high level, I'm sure they say this to themselves, and I certainly, I certainly said it to myself. 
I'd rather take the injury than not try. So I wouldn't mind sending myself into whatever it was. And my answer at the time was that I must need to go faster and harder into it because I'm not landing it, which is definitely not the actual answer. <laughs> I learned that over through experience. <laughs> you know. I guess it's tough, you know, for for young kids. They're so, you know, they just want to kite. They don't want to be doing stretching before they go on the water or a warm up no. or anything. They're just so excited to get out there. Yeah. So I guess it's changing that mindset and making them realise that, you know, if they want to be doing this when they're 35, 40 they need to be thinking about their bodies in a more long-term yes. way yes i think there are some um high level riders that are a bit older now who do take it much more seriously like you can find an app on ruben lenton who does um exercises specifically for kite surfing and aaron hadlow like certainly a lot of them actually have personal trainers now i know bruna kajia um it made a massive difference to her kiting as well um, so it is taken more seriously in the older kite surfing generation, older being 30. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so old. But, um, and then you can look to so many other sports where they do do a lot of off the water training or they have professional coaches behind them. The RIA for windsurfing, for instance, they have such a lot of off the water training to keep them fit and strong to help them be injury free. Um, so people are it's forced upon certain sports but in our sport it's still a choice and people just don't realize how important it is do you think that'll change with time i hope so yeah you'd think so like kite surfing will become more professional as it's now into the olympics and um it will get more support behind it so it, it will be and hopefully i'll be behind that too one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which I just sort of thought about while we're chatting. Don't ask me about the Olympics. For sort of cross-training and things like that, you've always sort of, you know, you've been into running and fitness and yoga and things like that. Last year, I seem to remember that you got into cold water swimming. Hmm. What's the story behind that? And why on earth would you go and break the ice on a lake and then get in in your bikini? <laughs> Hmm, why did I get into cold water swimming? I got into cold water swimming when I first had Finn, um, just because there was way less time to do sport and exercise. So I went from being in like high octane levels of sport to not very much at all. And the biggest way I could shock my system in the shortest length of time was getting into a seriously cold water <laughs> body. Um, so that would take out five minutes of my day and I'd feel great for the rest of the day. So that's where the cold water swimming initially came from. And I always felt like water was a cleanse for my body anyway. And it just kind of developed from there where like the, like I just needed it to be a bit colder to give myself the same kind of shock. Um, last winter is when I took it on to the, the maximum that I've done so far where um, I just wanted to embrace the winter. I was around for the whole winter. Um, so I wanted a reason to love every day, however cold it got. So it came this like really silly challenge to have to get in the water without a wetsuit on. Um, however cold it could get and I remember driving past a lake I live up here in the Lake District I remember driving past one of the lakes and it was frozen over completely and all I could think about was in my own van and the parking <laughs> was by the shore I had to do it so I just got into my van it's really quiet lane um, got my bikini on hopped over the wall and started treading through the ice and breaking it as I went um so got in and I'm just gonna say I don't go out of my depth when it's like this it's not like I dive into something that's super deep and then swim back no not at all like you have to break yourself in I have to break myself in gently um but it was great fun I was treading through the ice and then 
And I like, had to go down, sat down into it. And then I literally, to swim, I had to put my hands under the ice and raise my arms up through the water to get the ice to break ready for the next stroke. No way. Yeah. So you were breaking the ice as you swam. Yeah, I was breaking the ice as I swam. But it was beautiful blue skies in the middle of winter. And I was just in this most serene, quiet location. Um, yeah. Just yeah, an amazing pretty special. Experience. Yeah, pretty special. So I just started trying to make myself do that once a week. And there's quite a lot of talk about it and how hardcore it is. And It's become and a bit of a thing now, hasn't it, cold water swimming? It's very popular. I mean, it's got such a lot of health benefits. So supposedly it boosts your immune system. Um, it uh, increases your metabolism. It encourages the production of brown fat, which is what... Um, like, for instance, it basically means you can eat more cake and you'll still burn it off even though you're not doing more exercise. <laughs> good ah, reason that's a good itself. excuse. You can eat cake. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It wards off depression. Um, it allows you to concentrate more. Like, there's so many health benefits for it. Um, and so, actually, why would you not do it? It's more what it's about. it's freezing cold. Yeah, because it's freezing cold, <laughs> but it's very short-lived. It's like half an hour out of your day. And in that time, you go from being super snug and warm to really flipping cold. And then, like, by the end of the half hour, you found yourself a nice coffee stop that you've lined up in advance of your planning of this session. And you're drinking a really nice coffee and you really feel like you deserve it. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's good fun. I mean, old people do it all the time. Like, don't they? Like, there's a lot of people who were in their 60s and 70s. I went out in Ireland in March. Um, and they were just, there was one guy on his back in his speedo sculling in the sea. It was crazy. And they just do it as a matter of normality. Like, just um, what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, to make myself continue with the cold water swimming, I entered the Neptune Steps, which was in Glasgow in March, which That's is the Red Bull event. The Red it? Bull event. That's right. Where we had to swim a, I think it's 300 meter long stretch of the canal. Um, but at every lock, and there were eight locks, there was some form of obstacle that you had to get up and get across um, before swimming the next section. And you had to keep going until the end. And you had a 15-minute cutoff point on it. So, for instance, there were rope nets, there were ropes, there were climbing walls. Um, and what I didn't appreciate, and I'm not a good swimmer, so I had to train quite hard to be able to even make the distance. Um, what I didn't appreciate beforehand is that the water would be rushing out of those locks and through those obstacles. So it's taking you backwards, Essentially, the water's pushing you back yeah, as you're absolutely. trying to get to the obstacle. Absolutely. So you're in heats of 20 people and it's a very narrow gap. You all know canals um, and you're all arriving at the nets around the same time. And because I'm the slowest of swimmers, I'm the last one at the nets or the ropes. And so people are climbing up. and um, So you can't sort of tread water. I can't tread water and wait to get on the obstacle because it's pushing you back. So you can't really tread water and wait your turn. You just had to like launch yourself through that extra surge of water and grab hold of, of whatever it was. That's the bit I was quite good at. So from kite surfing, my upper body strength is okay. So I could hang on to a net or a rope or a climbing wall for as long as I needed. But the water is literally rushing out and you like just tucking your head underneath like the basic waterfall, trying to find somewhere to breathe. And in one of the obstacles, a girl was there for what felt like minutes and I was looking left and right and under and I couldn't find somewhere to breathe and I was looking down I was like I'm gonna have to drop off and all I could see was this surging water below and I was like 
I can't do that either. Like, I can't let go. I have to hold on. And luckily, she moved again. And then when my head finally came out the top of that obstacle, I got, like, just gasping for air. And then, yeah, like, I couldn't believe I got through it. And I got to the last obstacle at um, 15 minutes. And that was the cutoff point. But because I was on the last obstacle, I was able to go through. So you were allowed to finish. So I managed to to finish. But I think it was 200 people that completed it out of 650 people. So, wow. yeah, so it was a quite a big dropout rate. That's pretty savage. Yeah. Would you do it again? No, it was grim. <laughs> <laughs> it's March. Literally no hesitation there. No. no, it was grim. Definitely not doing that again. Do you know what was amazing, though, is that it's the first major event that I've done that's not kite surfing related. So in any kite surfing event, there's so much pressure to do well. And so it's a stressful thing. Whilst I had Finn with me and Chris and it was an event there, it really didn't matter what happened. And poor Finn, it was pouring with rain. So he was in full meltdown. So my heat was at one o'clock and at 11 o'clock, um, I had to take Finn into the tent, take all his clothes off him, put them by the space heaters, get all his clothes dry, give him some food, take him to the toilet, all those things. At 12.30, he finished his meltdown. He was warm and he was happy to go back outside again, at which point I then had to run back to the start line to do my heat. So <laughs> it was so funny because I had a great time. Like he was fine. We had a nice time in the tent with the space heaters. And then it was like, oh, yeah, I have an event to do. Quick, let's get into it. It was really nice to have no pressure to do well. Do you think you're going to get into some other sort of sports competitively? Because you've always had a very competitive nature, which is why you did so well, you know, at kiteboarding. Have you have you still got that competitive drive or do you just think it's gone a little bit as you've got older or? Yeah, I don't know. I definitely have a competitive drive, but it just doesn't come out as frequently anymore. Like I'm quite happy for people to do well and I don't really feel anything about that anymore. Whilst I did struggle with that for a long time. But then you're like, I don't know, suddenly something will come over me and um, some people I knew from the past are turning up at a beach and I really don't want to see them. All I want to do is ride. And then I go out and ride and I really feel the need to throw down some tricks. So I definitely still have that <laughs> so competitive even though there's not a competition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and would I do something else? I'd definitely up for more challenges. I don't know what they would be, though. Yeah, so whatever. I'd love to think that you. I'd do the wave riding tour. Really? Yeah, I'd love to think I'd do that. I love wave riding as well as my freestyle. I don't want to compete in freestyle anymore. Um, but the wave riding side of it, I'd like to think that I could do in the future. Be something to work on. Mm. I think that's your swan song. That is my swan song. I'm gonna I can have hear to go. Finn saying something upstairs. It's time for <laughs> Mummy Joe to go and look after him. Joe, that was really good fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, Thank me you. too. Me too. Thanks for asking that all the good. questions. I can't believe we managed to get that much time. Quiet. Quick, unclip your thing. Go. I'm going to go. <laughs> Make sure you unclip it before you run off. <laughs> Brilliant. There we have it. I think that's the first time that the podcast has been ended by a three-year-old. Um, Joe was fantastic and ran off to settle Finn as he was going to bed. And I'd like to thank her very much for the time that she gave me and also for putting me up for a few days up in Kendall. Um, it was great to catch up and hang out with you and the family. Next week got a few podcasts that I've recorded I haven't decided which one I'm going to do yet so let's keep it as a surprise I've got a busy week this week off to the uh, Western Australia Tech Fest on Rottnest Island um, so hoping to catch a few people there to chat to and then we've got the Lighthouse to Leighton kite surfing race uh, this weekend coming up so that should be a good opportunity to chat to some people there I love that race it's a great event be sure to look at it and check it out 
it's one of the best organized and most exciting kiteboarding races on the planet i think if it isn't in your to-do list then uh, make sure it is if you're a kiteboarder anyway as ever please give this a thumbs up share it with your friends uh, tell people about it down the pub and spread the word about the intriguing beings podcast until next week you've been listening to me rue chater have a great week